This is The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 126. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you that if you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can find me on social media at Facebook, at Brian McClanahan, on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. And on my YouTube page, you can subscribe there. Just go out and look for Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to go out and search for all those things, you can go to my homepage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all my social media buttons. Just click on those. It'll take you right to the social media pages, and you can like me or subscribe to me there as well. While you're on brianmcclanahan.com, shoot me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audio book, read by yours truly, Forgotten Founders. So pick those things up. And I just want to remind you that if you do like this podcast and you want to help support it, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support, and you can throw a few pennies my way, I'll hit help, my way, help keep the podcast going, help keep uh, all the things that I'm doing up and running. So any uh, support is greatly appreciated. And if you have uh, ordered my new book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, and you have a chance to read it, please go out and leave a review on Amazon, and please also leave a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more reviews, the better, and it'll help spread the word. Okay, so uh, what I want to talk about in this particular episode is something that I've I've mentioned quite a few times. It is a Think Locally, Act Locally episode. Um, and several, actually one of the first podcasts I did um, was an episode entitled Small is Beautiful. And so I've done several of these type of episodes. And in that particular podcast, I focused on the uh, idea of the size of a state in terms of representative government. And I got into this representative ratio situation we have in America that's way out of whack where we have in the Constitution, George Washington thought, and the founding generation thought that 30,000 to 1 was a good representative ratio for Republican government. And now we're sitting at 750,000 or close to that to 1. And so we really don't have representative government, but we do have that at the state and local level, particularly if you look at a 30,000 to 1 ratio, the state I live in, for example, uh, is a 30,000 to 1 ratio in the state legislature. You have some state legislatures where it's less than that, 10,000 to 1 or less. So you have more representative government in your states than you do in the general government. Also, when you look at your local government, how much control you have over your local government, there's a lot more control over these type of things than you have at, at the federal level. And uh, when you look at, uh, if you just think people are going to vote by race, uh, for example, if we're all identitarians, then uh, African-Americans are much better represented at the state level than they are at the general government. So uh, you know, there are several reasons why, when we start talking about these particular issues, uh, it seems that real federalism, decentralization, these type of things are a preferable path for American citizens. Uh, but people just don't seem to get it because they think that the only government we have is in Washington, D.C. The only elections we should vote in are in Washington, D.C. And that somehow we really have a Republican form of government because we have town hall meetings. Uh, you know, the presidents have fireside chats, weekly radio addresses, things like that. The president now is on Twitter. And so we feel like we're connected. We can just go on Twitter and bark back at the president. And we think he's even going to pay attention. I, I can guarantee you, unless you're somebody, he doesn't. So uh, this is this is the case. I mean, we think that we have this direct connection with people. And in some ways, you know, Trump's use of Twitter is uh, in, in how he does that is a very Republican thing. It's, it's bringing the office down 
to the masses. Uh, this is Jefferson walking from his inaugural to uh, to his inaugural uh, from his, in his inaugural uh, uh, address, walking to it. That's the same type of thing. It's Jefferson down, <clears throat> downgrading the office of the presidency, and that is an interesting uh, interesting development. But at the same time, we have a government that's far too big, a population that's far too large to be governed by 545 people in Washington, D.C., or even a million bureaucrats uh, in Washington, D.C. It's just It just won't work. And so today I actually want to talk about uh, a book and a person that's been saying this for years, for decades. Uh, and he uh, wrote a very fine essay in a book that was uh, published, let's see, what year was this book published? It was published in 2012, and the title is Rethinking the American Union for the 21st Century. It's edited by Don Livingston, who is the president of the Abbeville Institute. And this was based on a conference that was held in Charleston, South Carolina, I believe in 2010. Uh, they had a very nice conference there on the issue of uh, decentralization and real federalism and, and thinking about size and scale of government. Uh, and one of the participants in that particular conference was a man named Kirkpatrick Sale. Now, Kirkpatrick Sale would never be confused as being a conservative. Uh, he has never been a conservative. Um, he is someone who, who is very interested in size and scale, though. In fact, uh, he wrote a book entitled uh, Human Scale uh, in 1980 talking about size and scale. So this is something that uh, Kirkpatrick uh, Sale has been doing for a very long period of time, almost 40 years now. He's been interested in this idea of size and scale. And in this particular essay, it's 10 pages, and there is, he also has republished the book, which I want to talk about. There's actually a very nice review of this revisited or revised uh, book in uh, Chronicles magazine. But he wrote a very nice little essay in this book, Rethinking the American Union for the 21st Century. If you don't have a copy, of course, you can get it on Amazon. But he said, um, let's look at the size of modern states. And so if you think about the United States, it's a huge territory. From the Pacific Ocean, Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean has 320 million people. Uh, the state of Alabama has as many people in it now as the entire United States had in 1790. So when you think about the founding generation and you think about, you know, when they were talking about government, one state, I mean, not even a large state, has as many people as the entire United States had in 1790. So we've got a, we've got a situation where the government has gotten, the United States has gotten so much larger, I think, than the founding generation ever conceptualized. You know, you look at the Roman Empire, even at the height of the Roman Empire, there are only 100 million people in it. And that was considered to be a mega empire, 100 million people. When you go back and look at the Doomsday Book, and I talked about this already in this podcast, go back and look at the Doomsday Book, a large town had maybe 1,000 people in it. That was large. The largest city in the United States in 1790 had about 35,000 people in it. The city I live in is considered a small city now, has more than that. So it's amazing how we've, our conceptualization of size and scale has changed. And we seem to think that only these megastates can provide any security, any economic well-being. That's what we have to have. We have to have a megastate. The United States, Russia, China. You know, you look at your megastates, and this is what has to be there to maintain economic 
vibrancy, to maintain any type of uh, military stability or uh, military protection. But I think Kirk Sale does a nice job of pointing this out. <clears throat> so I'm going to quote some of the things from this essay because it's so good. He says, quote, Of all the world's political entities, there are 223 of them. By the way, he doesn't say this, but the United States has military, uh, military influence in half of those countries. Counting the smallest independent islands, 45 are below 250,000 people. So of the 223 countries in the world, 45 have less than 250,000 people, yet they're economically viable. 67 of these 223 have below 1 million people, and half, roughly half, have below 5 million he says, in fact, 50% of nations are below 5.5 million, and a full 58% are smaller than Switzerland's population of 7.7 million. So think about that. The majority of the states in the world, of 223, are small states. The size of the state of Alabama. The size of the state of Alabama. Half of the countries in the world are that size, and yet they're economically viable. He continues, obviously most countries in the world function with relatively small populations. And looking at the nations that are recognized models of statecraft, there are eight of them even below 500,000. Luxembourg, Malta, Iceland, Barbados, Andorra, Liechtenstein, Monaco, and San Marino. The example of Iceland with the world's oldest parliament and an unquestioned beacon of democracy suggests that 319,000 people is all you would need. Going up a bit in size, there are another six models of good governance below 5 million. Singapore, Norway, Costa Rica, Ireland, New Zealand, and Estonia. So here you have prosperous states, states with, with very good government, states with very vibrant economies. And they aren't being invaded on a daily basis. And yet they're small. And so when I say, you know, small is beautiful, and I say things like think locally, act locally, this is what I'm aiming at. This is what I'm getting at here. And I think this essay does a nice job of explaining that. Then he continues. Next, let us look at the size of the most prosperous nations ranked by per capita GDP. 18 of the top 20 by GDP rank are small, under 5 million, and all but one of the top 10 are under 5 million. That's the United States at 10th place, the others being in order Liechtenstein, Qatar, Luxembourg, Bermuda, Norway, Kuwait, Jersey, Singapore, and Brunei. The average size of those nine is 1.9 million people. The average size of all 27 of the top economic nations, excluding the United States, is 5.1 million. So, this is an amazing thing. Economically, you don't need to be a megastate. Of course, the United States is, is 10th, but there are nine states that have better GDP. And he recognizes that GDP is not always the best way to measure an, uh, the vibrancy of an economy. But still, this is what the uh, mainstream economists use to, to recognize economic vibrancy. So he's saying that the top nine, top, top nine states are small, small, less than 5 million people. He says, let us take another measure, freedom, as reckoned by three different rating sources. Freedom House, the Wall Street Journal, and The Economist, using measures of civil liberties, open elections, free media, and the like. Of the 14 states reckoned freest in the world, nine of them, 64%, have populations below Switzerland at 7.7 .7 million, and 11 below Sweden at 9.3 million. 
And the only sizable states are Canada, the United Kingdom, and Germany, the largest, at 81 million. Notice the United States is not in that list. There is one other measure of freedom put out by Freedom House, ranking all the nations of the world according to political rights and civil liberties. And there are only 46 nations with perfect scores. The majority of those are under 5 million in population, and indeed 17 of them are even under 1 million. That is rather astonishing in itself, and only 14 of the 46 free nations are over 7.5 million, excluding the United States, whose reputation for freedom is fully belied by its incarceration of 2.3 million people, 25% of, of the world's prisoners, and excluding the United Kingdom, Spain, and Poland, the average population of the free states of the world is approximately 5 million. So again, I used Alabama at the beginning of this podcast as an example, and the United States as an example. Its conclusion is going to be in this, in this particular chapter that the ideal state is about 5 million people. The ideal country is about 5 million people. He goes on, and when you look at things like literacy, these are small countries. Um, when you look at geographic size, he says, uh, you don't have to have a megastate to have a successful country. He says a great many nations are surprisingly small. Underlying the point, often missed by critics of secession, that a nation does not have to be self-sufficient to operate well in the modern world. In fact, 85 of the 223 political entities counted by the United Nations are under 10,000 square miles. That is to say, the size of Vermont or smaller. And they include Israel, El Salvador, the Bahamas, Qatar, Lebanon, Luxembourg, Singapore, and Andorra. So he's saying you don't have to be a big megastate. You don't have to be a big megastate to have a good economy. He actually says this, and I love this line, Small, let's face it, is not only beautiful, but bountiful. So, this is uh, an important point to make. When we look at the United States, and we tend to think of things, you know, in these, we've got to have the United States be here to here, Can't got to be from north to south, this border, west to east, this border, we got to have these uh, particular territories as part of it, dependencies. We got to have this state and this state. Hawaii and Alaska have to be included. Um, we have to have, you know, so many states. It's got to be 50. We can't have 49. We can have 48. One state breaks away, it destroys the United States. This is a stupid argument that's often used. Well, if one state goes away, well, that destroys the United States. How so? Does the United States government cease to exist? Does the military dissolve? Do all the banking and financial houses fold? Because one state leaves the Union, or even two or three or ten, would all of that fold? Or would the United States, so, I mean, does the Constitution just evaporate in thin air? The, the Constitution for the United States just evaporate? Do the other states just cease to exist? These are stupid arguments, but they're often made. Well, you destroy the United States if a state leaves. You do? That would be news of the founding generation. Um, and... This is why I think that this is such an important topic, because we need to change the direction of how people think about government and government from the bottom up. It had always been the American principle, the American tradition, that government came from the bottom up, from the consent of the governed, that legitimacy was found in the consent of the governed, and that you had to have control over your government in order to make it effective and responsive to the people that it represented well, you can't do that when your representative ratio is 750,000 to 1. What needs to happen is people need to reorient their focus, again, to think locally and act locally. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, 
The general government doesn't want to give up its power, ever. But it can be shown that it has no clothes. You just ignore it, in a way. You start paying attention to what goes on around you. I mean, this is one thing. There's another essay in this book by the late Thomas Naylor, who's talking about Vermont independence. And his point was, you know, we need to build, and he was trying to do this before he died, but we're, we're trying to build a Vermont for uh, Green Mountain boys, you know, a, a Vermont for the Green Mountain people. Uh, this is what we need to do uh, in Vermont. So they were doing things like local Vermont music nights and Vermont cuisine and all these other type of things. And so the idea was to help build this very localized culture that was independent from American culture because Naylor believed that Vermont had its own people and those people were distinct and unique. And Vermont was large enough to be its own country. Uh, it, it had access to Canada, didn't have to uh, be, you know, have access to anything else, but it, it was strong enough to be its own country. And so I think that's, that's the important part of understanding this, this need for small is beautiful. Uh, now, he goes on to conclude about the, or talk about the United States in this particular chapter. So he says, of the 50 states, just over half, 29, are below 5 million people. Half the population lives in 40 states that average about 3.7 million people. The other half is in the 10 largest states. In the 3 to 5 million population class, there are 10 states and one colony that I'm suggesting would be ideal secession candidates. Iowa, Connecticut, Oklahoma, Oregon, Puerto Rico, Kentucky, Louisiana, South Carolina, Alabama, Colorado, and Mississippi. Another 13 between 1 to 3 million people would, buy, would be ideal. Montana, Rhode Island, Hawaii, New Hampshire, Maine, Idaho, Nebraska, West Virginia, New Mexico, Nevada, Utah, Kansas, and Arkansas. Another 8 below a million, but larger than Iceland, would also be ideal, and that includes beloved Vermont. In other words, 31 of the states, plus Puerto Rico, fall in a range where smaller sizes in, in the rest of the world have produced successful independent nations. Those are the candidates for successful secession. And to that, the lessons for, from geographic size. We have already seen that 84 political areas in the world are smaller than Vermont, the second smallest U.S. state. Now let us see how the states measure up to the world figures. The median U.S. state area is roughly 58,000 square miles. 25 states are smaller than that and 25 bigger. If all of those under 58,000 were independent, they would match 79 other nations in the world, among them Greece, Nicaragua, Iceland, Hungary, Portugal, Austria, the Czech Republic, Ireland, Sri Lanka, Denmark, Switzerland, the Netherlands, and Taiwan. In other words, size is no hindrance whatsoever to successfully operating a nation, as a nation in the world. And as I have suggested, small seems indeed to be a virtue. So these are themes that he had built on in his book, Human Scale. And now he has just re-released this book. Um, and so uh, the essayist, Jack Trotter, wrote a very nice review of it in uh, Chronicles magazine. Again, another magazine if you've never picked up before, I would highly recommend. It's not Chronicles of Higher Education. It's just Chronicles, a magazine of American culture. And so I would recommend that you go on out and uh, look at this magazine as well. Now, one thing about Sale and, and what he tries to do in this particular book, in human scale, and what he's done over and over again, is try to imagine this is not a utopian experiment. I mean, he is looking at practical things, 
Uh, he does anticipate critics, so he tries to imagine what an independent state, like the state of South Carolina, where, he, where, where I mean, he currently lives there, what that would look like, uh, and how this would fit within a, a particular type of worldview. So Sale, again, is a left-winger. He, he's someone who's interested in um, you know, pastoralism, environmentalism. Uh, he's not someone that's, uh, you know, you could call him an agrarian, so to speak. And so he's more in line with, say, the Southern tradition, even though he's, he's not, uh, not from the South. But he's more in line with the Southern tradition, which is why he likes it so much, than he is in a lot of other places. He's not a corporationist big businessman, for example. Uh, he believes in this democratic agrarian order like you would find in the wonderful book, I'll Take My Stand by the, uh, by the Fugitive Agrarians. He's a Jeffersonian, so to speak. Um, now, he does advocate something that libertarians would find interesting, anarcho-libertarians, anarcho-capitalists, and of course anarchists in general, because he calls for a stateless society. Um, and so he says, quote, the logical endpoint of the decentralist tradition, he argues, tends not just towards diminished central state, but to the withering away of the state altogether. And so, of course, as, as uh, Trotter points out, that's that phrase comes from Marx, but Sales no Marxist. Uh, Marx regarded this, as Trotter says, quote, Marx regarded the state as an instrument of economic domination destined to disappear under the revolutionary auspices of an all-powerful dic all dictatorship of the proletariat. Sale never explicitly develops a theory of the state, but seems to assume that it has no redeeming moral or political function. Rather, the state is simply coercive power made manifest in centralized government institutions that claim a monopoly on the use of violence rationalized as a maintenance of law and order. Uh, and to show that uh, this is not just some utopian dream, Sale says this, quote, When a few isolated peoples began forming fixed hierarchies and chieftaincies about 5,000 years ago, stateless societies were the normal mode of human existence. Uh, their success came as a result of, quote, a very simple mechanism, which was, Blessedly free of state power, social control was established and maintained through the cohesiveness of tribal or group identity, in which the, quote, transgressions of one is likely to threaten the well-being of all. So this is the notion, and that Jeff Dice has been talking a lot about at Mises, and what people have been saying here, is that uh, the, and if you look at uh, Althusius's Politica, and if you look at um, where Sale is coming from here, he's an, he's an Aristotelian. This is the idea that clan and community is first and foremost, and you are going to have cohesiveness, and there are going to be rules within that clan and community, but it does not involve uh, a faraway or distant state or people to tell you what to do. That is the important part of understanding where people like Sale are coming from with these small is beautiful positions. If you read Aristotle, if you read politics, if you read Althusius' Politica, um, they talk about the building blocks of government starts with the family. For Aristotle and Althusius, it will be the father first and foremost and dominating the family. And then it would go out from there. You would have political associations. But the state does not need to be, or the community does not need to be big to form as a cultural entity. You are going to find, and this is something that Ron Paul has actually said too, look, it's good to be with like-minded people. You want to live in communities with people that think like you, that are like you. This is a natural thing in human nature. 
we go out and we find friends with people that are like us. Uh, and so uh, nowadays, a lot of that has to do with ideas and how people want to live and how they want to rear their children and what kind of moral and ethical codes they want to have. Uh, you know, if you believe in a certain moral code or a certain moral standard, Christians like to coalesce around each other. Uh, Muslims like to coalesce around each other. Jews like to coalesce around each other. So, I mean, you have religion as part of this. Uh, you have ideas as part of this. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's important to to think about these things in that way. This is not alien to human nature. It is human nature. And then of course these communities self police. Uh, if everyone this is if you go back and look at American history, and I'd recommend David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed. And one thing he talked about with the Quakers, the Quakers were such a unified community, and this is why they had rules on certain things. Um, this is why they could believe in, in socializing children, because when your children went out for socialization in Quaker society, the only people they were around were Quakers. You knew your neighbors. You knew exactly who they were. You, they, had the, they shared similar beliefs or the same beliefs. And so you had no fear of your children being around these people because they were just like you. The same thing can be said for the Puritan communities in New England, where uh, you would actually send your children to other families so they could receive additional rearing. This is part of the process. When, when Hillary Clinton goes out and says it takes a village to raise the children, you have to know who's in your village. Sending your kids off the way we do today to public education, we send them out to places we have no idea who's going to be there. Where do these teachers come from? Where do the other families come from? What values do they hold? Do they share our values? Uh, you know, do, do they share our view of the world? And yet we just send our kids out. And there's, you know, there is something to be said for making your kids worldly, but only when they can handle those things. When they have the fiber and the backbone to recognize what is different and what is right and wrong, what is alien and what is natural. And so when you do that, when you have a cultural backbone, it's easy to come into contact with other people because you're not going to just be you know, persuaded to adopt their culture uh, because you have your own. You have your own view of things. And it's not to say that you can't be persuaded or you think that somebody else's culture is interesting or you know, want to think, well, that's, that's fascinating to learn about them and understand them. These, these are things are, are perfectly fine. But as both Aristotle and Althusius say, you know, when you start with a family, you start small and work up. That's the only way these things are going to work. That's the only way you avoid the type of vitriol and violence in some ways that we're seeing in modern American society. The problem is we have a one-size-fits-all, top-down situation to every problem, and people just bristle at it. So if you actually followed an Aristotelian approach, I don't know if the state would ever wither away, uh, but you would certainly have self-policing communities. This is the idea of um, you know, this, this uh, uh, stateless society. You still would have a, a community that would police itself. So there's nothing wrong with that and having some cultural continuity and having people that are like-minded and, and like, they're, they're like each other and this is the people they want to be around. That actually creates a tremendous amount of happiness. This is, you know, Jefferson said, uh, that's one thing we need in society is life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. So what is the problem with that? The problem, of course, is that everyone is taught from the time they're young that we have one government, as I said at the beginning, one government, one size fits all. We have to force our, our will on people uh, who are not like us, make them think like us, make them believe like us. 
I, I don't, if you don't want to believe like me, fine. Go believe what you want. Uh, just don't think I have to believe like you. And that is the beauty of free speech and free thought. As long as I am not infringing on your property or your rights in any way, who cares? It's the non-aggression principle. I mean, these are things that, uh, you know, we talk about libertarianism, which is an ideology, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's bigger than that. I mean, there's not really an ideolo- ideology there. It's just a set of principles. Um, you know, an ideologue would be a little different. It's a set of principles that you live by. And so those principles will then form, if you're in people of a like-minded community, form a community. And as Sale says in this wonderful essay, you don't need more than about 5 million people to have an ideal state at all. That would be the maximum size that you would need. In fact, smaller would be even better than that. Could you have 250,000 like-minded people? Probably not. So you might even need to think about it smaller than that. The, the more decentralized, the better, because it gives you more and more freedom and flexibility, more economic freedom, more civil libertarian freedom, these type of things. And so if you have a basic core belief in those things, which unfortunately Americans are seeming to lose on a daily basis, then you can have these type of discussions and you can be in a very rational situation and say, well, this is what we should do. My hope is that through things like this podcast and um, through things like uh, Learn True History and other places, we can uh, start to change the narrative change the direction of the narrative. It seems like an uphill battle, but I think it's winnable because people are yearning for something different, some other type of voice that means something. We're looking at you know, secession movements now all over the world, and in the next episode I'm going to talk about that uh, with um, in, in relation back to American history. So I hope you tune in for that one. But uh, this idea, this, this human-scale idea that I think Sale is so good at doing, uh, it's one thing that, uh, you know, if you, if you read anyone... Um, uh, then I think that uh, you know, Leopold Kor would be one, but also Kirkpatrick Sale. Uh, I think I think that uh, these are, you know, important people to read about this idea of, of size and scale and small is beautiful. Also, Don Livingston at the Abbeville Institute. So, um, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I'll see you next time on the Brian McClaney. Page.